right, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We're kind of like the uh, airplane that circles around the Atlanta airport for hours. If you've ever been up around Atlanta trying to land, and it just keeps circling and circling, and you say it's got to come down eventually, that's Romans 8, verse 23 for us right now. We've been in it for a little while, circling, and we're going to try to land it today. At least, as I call it, finish it up. Verse number 23. We are in a study of the security of the believer. And um, there are fascinating things here in Romans chapter 8 that we have been walking through very carefully, seeking to understand the Lord's great love for us and how He has secured us. It's not something we have done. As I told you before, you're hard-pressed to go through chapter 8 of Romans and find anything it calls you to do. It's all what He has done. He has done. He has done. And we continue on with that theme as we get all the way into verse 23. We're almost halfway or a little more than halfway through the chapter. So we're getting close to the end, which I think will come somewhere around November. That's my estimation. But uh, we've been on it since January, the first week of January, and I, I've enjoyed it. I hope you have, too. Um, we need to see these things. So today we're going into verse number 23, and the fact that our future is secured is stated in the verses 19 through verse number 25. So I'm going to read that little paragraph again for us, have a word of prayer, and then dive especially into the end of verse 23 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be... Oh, that's verse 18. Okay, let's start there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Heavenly Father, again we approach this passage asking for your guidance. We thank you that you have given to us the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. And we need that, especially in a passage like this. Uh, It is something we have not experienced yet, because it speaks of that which happens beyond this life. But I pray, Lord, that you help us to grasp it. At least in the end, may we have more confidence in what you are doing. May we feel more secure in your word, in your promises in your plan for our future. May we just rest in you today as we hear these things that you are doing, and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in verse number 23, we have uh, been camping on the last two phrases, last week and this week, 
speaking of our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Something we're waiting eagerly for. And I keep bringing that up, because I'm curious to know, are we really eagerly waiting for these things? Eagerly waiting for these things. I don't know if you were like this or not. When I was a teenager, I started hearing about things like the rapture of the church and and such like that. And and I was a new believer, and I thought, well, that'd be great. I mean, that sounds wonderful. But as a teenager, I also sat there and said, but Lord, could you wait? You know why? Everyone said, can you wait a little while? I want to become an adult, I, I want to have uh, a wife, I want to have children, I want to, I want to do this, I want to, have you ever done that before? No one can admit it. It was only the pastor that thinks that way, alright? Uh, and and it, I can honestly tell you, it wasn't a waiting eagerly for kind of thing for me. At that age, I thought, surely someday I'll start waiting eagerly for it. Well, the more I study God's Word and the more I look at the world around us, I'm waiting eagerly for this. I am waiting eagerly for this. And so the things that the text is speaking about are our adoption of sons and the redemption of our body. And I summed up the first phrase last week in that simple concept that, yes, we are adopted as sons. Scripture makes that point very clearly. That's been done. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation and faith in Him, we have been called by God, chosen by God, for adoption as sons. And it's beautiful. But we're not there yet, as far as getting home. We're not there in His presence yet. He's adopted us to that, and that full picture will be realized someday. I pictured it like this. You would say you were adopted out of an orphanage. And you went and packed your bags, and you got in the car, and you rode with your brand new parents on some journey that was some distance till you got to the house that was to be your home. You were sure all the way that you were adopted. You saw it on the papers. But there's something about getting home when you know you're home. And I think there's a similar picture, as simple as that might be, is that the fact that Father has adopted us as sons, and we're not home yet. There's something more we wait eagerly for, and that is to be there. We're going to talk about that as Paul sums it up so nicely in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. He says, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. I love those words. And so, we talked about the adoption. Now let's move on to the redemption of our body, because this is the question I raised last week, and I bring it back up to you again this week, and that is, so... If we should die today, and we should go to heaven today, which Scripture teaches, by the way, a believer in Jesus Christ who is absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if we should go there today, with what kind of body would we have? Or would we? Would we be ghosts? Would we be angels? What would we be? Well, those kind of questions I'd like to uh, address a little bit here. In that simple phrase, the redemption of our body. We are waiting eagerly for it. So let's talk about what it is. As best we can tell from God's Word, let's walk through it. The redemption of our body. The Greek word is a great little word. Apolutrosis. Doesn't that sound great? 
<coughs> what is that? Apo is from, separated from, and the, the word luo is in here. And the luo is a great little word. My, my Greek students learn that one immediately, and they, every single time we learn a new tense, we bring up the word luo. It's L-U-W or L-U-O in our way of saying it. But it means to set free, to loose, those kind of things. But it also means, and there's the funny thing they always bring up, is it means to destroy. And for some reason, that's the answer I always get on my quizzes, is to destroy, to destroy. I'm destroying, he is destroying, she is destroying. And they love to bring up destroying instead of being loose. Well, I tell them, that's fine, it's the same word, but there are certain passages in Scripture, you don't use it that way. Like when he told his disciples to go set, or set loose the donkey and bring it to me. Destroy doesn't fit the context, does it? So, I said, be careful with that word. That's in this word, by the way. It's not the destruction of the body, obviously, it's the setting loose of it, setting it free. And the, the noun form is a lutron. A lutron I picture like a crowbar. If you want a tool, it's a tool that is used to break something free. That's the idea. Sometimes you need a crowbar to separate things to, that are pretty tightly held together. And this word I like to think of uh, when we see the word redemption. That's the essence of the word. To be set free by a tool. A lutron. To be set free, to be separated from something by a tool. That's the redemption price that has been paid for you. I'm walking through this very carefully and slowly even right now so you understand this. Jesus Christ paid that price for you. When he died on a cross, that was the price that we owed. The wages of sin is death. We owe that. What did he do? He died. He paid the price. That was the only thing that would set us free, is the price had to be paid. Redemption is the word for it. He did that. He redeemed us. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him, that's Jesus Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That's the powerful agent that did it. His blood. If you're trying to be set free from your sins or, or find salvation in any other way, it won't work, folks. Jesus Christ is the only answer. And that's what the scripture tells us carefully. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. It's according to the riches of his grace, but it is only through Christ. That's our spiritual redemption, and we're thankful for it. Now the question is this, do we have it now? Yes, we do, don't we? We have that in Christ Jesus right now. Those of you, and I trust it's all of you, but I, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have that redemption. You have it. So isn't it interesting we're waiting for another kind of redemption here? We're waiting for the redemption of our body. All right? Spiritually, you have it. And quite honestly, if you don't have it spiritually, you'll never have it physically. This has to be the case. You have to know Christ as Savior for you to have the benefits of that salvation. But here's the reality. We have been set free already from the penalty of sin. We've been separated from it. Praise the Lord for that. Let's talk about our physical body now. Ready? 
Romans chapter 8 verse 23 talks specifically about the redemption of our body. Now, is he saying we're going to be separated from our body? Some crowbar is going to come in there and fry you out? No, that's not what it is. But our body is going to be separated from something. It's going to be separated from something. The whole context has been telling us what it is. We saw it in verse number 20. The creation is subjected to futility. You know that. We know that. You ever weed your flower bed? What do you find in a week? More weeds. Thank you, Adam. Right? You go to work today to earn money. What do you have to do tomorrow? Go to work and earn more money. Why? It's, oh, I hate to say it. It's futility. We have to keep on doing the same things over and over and over again. This world knows it well. Futility is reality. And that's all we've ever known, to tell the truth. That's all we've ever known. But we have been set in a world of futility. And even creation itself was set that way. And that was not willingly, but God did that. This creation and this person is... Subject to corruption, verse 21 says. Subject to corruption. That means we're perishable. That means we're mortal. Those things are true too. Now, we don't know any different. That's all we've ever known. We've known futility. We've known what it means to be perishable. We've known what it means to be mortal. And we're in that system. Someday you will be set free from that. The body will be redeemed from that. Just like creation in this entire context. It speaks of it being set free from this corruption. And it will know. It will know what God has designed it to be. And it's waiting. It's waiting eagerly. That's the picture we have in this passage. Here's, here's what we know about the body. God made these bodies. Alright? Not some frog. Not some monkey. Not something that oozed out of the ocean. God made us. That's just reality. Scripture says so. God made us, and God will redeem us. Okay? Simple things, but make it clear. What's that got to do with our future? Well, folks, this answers so many things for us. A beautiful song that Kelly sang. Uh, Why do we get discouraged? If God is so concerned about a sparrow, does he not concern himself about you? When we read of all these things in Scripture, I don't read anything about the sparrow being redeemed. I see your body, my body, and the redemption that speaks of here in this passage. It's our future that God is talking about. See, God did not save half a man. He didn't save half a man. He saved the whole man. Both body and And that's true as we walk through the passage. He initially redeemed us in the spiritual sense. In the final redemption, it will be of our body. Physically. That's the whole picture. So let me walk through some spiritual, I'll call it, I don't know if speculation is the right word here. I'm going to use logical deduction. Does that make sound better? 
logical deduction I get from Scripture. Because this might be a little hard to understand, but uh, we haven't been there yet. We haven't been there where we've died and we've gone on to heaven and we know what that experience is going to be. But what is going to happen? We die before the rapture occurs. What will our experience be? Will we will we be awake? Will we be asleep? Will we be uh, in heaven? Will we be in spirit form? Will we have bodies? Uh, will we be ghosts? Well, let's talk it through. First, this is where we start. Our present body is in the state of perishing. It is in that state of perishing. It will be resurrected in the rapture. Now, I'm talking about believers here, okay? I'm talking about the church. Acts chapter 2, all the way to the present day, until Jesus Christ comes again for us at the rapture. That's the group of people I'm talking about. The church will be raptured. That's our resurrection. Whether you're alive or whether you're not, you will be part of the rapture. That's the resurrection of the church. Acts chapter 15. We spent a lot of time on that. Remember? Years ago? We spent lots of time in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Not Acts. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians 4. We spent a lot of time in that, speaking about that particular resurrection. That's ours. That's where we're heading. It could happen today. I wouldn't mind, would you? It could happen today. But that's where we're heading. But if we should die, here's one reality I start with. We go to be with the Lord. We go to be with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5. I'll show you the verses so we can support all this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and that's verse number 8. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are of good courage, it says, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Not someday, or maybe, but there's reality here. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Here's what way Paul said it in Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians 1, verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between two different directions. One, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, and then the other, in the context, is to stay on and minister to you, Philippians. But that's his, one of his options. And he says, for me to depart, I will be with Christ. That's Philippians 1, verse 23. He was confident of those thoughts. He taught them often, and Scripture supports that very strongly. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that much. If we should perish, if we should die before this day is out, we as believers in Christ goes to be with Him. There's no maybe in that. Okay? That one we know. For a believer to die, he immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. For a believer to die, he is also absent from the body. This body that we wear here, it's the thing we bury. I like to call it the envelope, right? And we're inside. We bury it. But God will resurrect that body 
That's what the text tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's what God will resurrect there. You say, but, but my body's here and I'm there. How's that going to work? Well, don't be surprised at what God can do. He's done amazing things, hasn't he? If he could create this world out of nothing, he could certainly resurrect your body. And that's what he plans to do. And he will resurrect that body on that day when Christ comes for us. So, in the meantime, does that mean we don't have a body? <laughs> this is fun. Let me give you some considerations, okay? First one, and I'm going to take a wild passage way back in the Old Testament, because I'm going to give you an Old Testament story first. And that's in First Samuel chapter 28. Really, really fascinating little section here. First uh, Samuel chapter 28. Everything in this chapter is, is just, well, let's say this. Saul, King Saul is having a very bad day. King Saul is in trouble. He is surrounded by his enemy. He's about to go into battle. He has a fear that he will not survive the battle. He usually would call on Samuel the prophet in order to give him advice on what he should do. But of course, if you read the story of Saul, he doesn't listen very well either. And as a result of that, he's in a terrible predicament. Matter of fact, one of his other things he'd done, and probably a little rashly along the way, but because he wasn't a spiritual man, he just suddenly decided, uh, let's make a law that there's no spiritists in the land, there's nobody who could, you know, do fortunes or anything like that. He just threw that out. Now, that was scriptural anyway. But it was about the one and only decision he ever made that seemed scriptural. But he did that. And now he's kind of regretting it because he's in a predicament and he wants some spiritual advice, and Samuel's dead. So what's he do? He goes to somebody who could conjure up the dead. He goes to a spiritist. All right? So, mark the whole thing is, this is really a shady little section, and everyone is expecting uh, interesting things. First, uh, Second Samuel 28, verse 7. Samuel, or Saul, disguised himself. There's your first clue that this was sitting out right. He disguised himself by putting on cl other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night and said, and there's your other clue, they came at night, so no one would see them, and said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name for you. But the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? She knew it was against the law, and she knew the penalty was death. Saul vowed to her by the Lord. Oh, that's a bad phrase. He's asking her to do something wrong, and he's vowing in the name of the Lord that he would protect her. As the Lord lives, he says, No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, All right, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Now Samuel's been dead for a little while here. And the woman saw Samuel. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? She saw Samuel, and she cried out with a loud voice, why? All the other times there were tricks. This worked. As a matter of fact, it was Samuel the prophet. And it's thunder. 
And she says, why have you deceived me? For you I saw. She understood suddenly what was going on. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming out of the earth. He said to her, what is its form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. All right, stop right there. He recognized what he heard. He recognized Samuel by what he heard. He didn't see Samuel. This lady saw Samuel. But he recognized what he'd heard about Samuel. Uh, This Samuel, in the passage, could communicate with him. He has a conversation. This Samuel has the appearance of an old man wrapped in a robe. Now, you say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that the way we're going to appear? Would that bother you? Of course, half of you don't want to be old men in robes. Have you ever played that little game of what we shall be when we get there? And the average person wants 33 years of age, perfect health, perfect shape, perfect everything. And they say, well, that's not got to be it. And so we go through all this speculation of what we shall look like. Samuel looked like Samuel in this story. All right? And you say, I don't know if I'd find encouragement with that one. Samuel looked like Samuel. All right. Now, that's all I'm going to say about it. All right? You've got a thousand questions. I'm going to move on. So, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Let's move to an episode during the life of Christ. Matthew 17, verse number 1. It says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up to a mountain, high mountain, by the way, by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Why? So they had a place to stay. Little place to camp out. They were setting up a retreat center, apparently. This is a nice little place for us to meet now. All of a sudden, we've got Moses, we've got Elijah, and we've got Christ here. Jesus, or Peter, recognized them. How did he know what Moses looked like? Was he there when Moses was alive? That was 1,400 years previously. Was he, did he ever see Elijah? No, but there was something about them that was recognizable. Because he said, I want to build one for you and for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, maybe they had name tags on. How do we know? We don't. But there's something about this that he recognized these two, though he had never seen them before. He recognized them. Notice they were able to communicate again. They were talking to Jesus. They appeared to him. Matter of fact, they appeared in some sort of bodily form because Peter said they build houses. I don't know if you build a house for a ghost. 
But he says, why don't we do this? Now, this is rather interesting because they had some sort of body. They resembled somewhat of their old form, whatever that would be. And yet, these folks have not been resurrected yet. They have not had their resurrection yet. Now you say, okay. Now hold that thought and go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 11. We're going to launch way into the future now. Matter of fact, we're going to even move to a different group of people. We're going to talk about the unsaved. Those who have not accepted Christ as Savior. These are the wicked dead. Uh, they are dead at this time. They will be brought before the Lord someday for judgment. We call it the great white throne judgment. And here in Revelation chapter 20, that's being described to us. Somebody who dies today and does not know the Lord goes to a place we call Hades. The other word we use is hell. That's where they stay. That's where they wait until the resurrection of their bodies and the judgment day of the great white throne. And here is the passage that speaks of it. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, Books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from these things, which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Here's a simple picture. Verse 13 kind of sums it up nicely. These folks are already in hell, Hades, waiting for judgment, but their bodies aren't with them. In some cases, for example, it's in the sea. Say, well, that's an impossible place to resurrect a body. Not for the Lord. He will resurrect those bodies. And the bodies and the souls will be united here, standing in judgment before the Lord. Say, okay. How do we know that that's, that's, well, that's what it says. But let me give you another episode here, while you hang on to that. And it's in Luke. Back up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse number 19. You'll recognize this story. Jesus is telling the story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Now, I want you to understand something as I go into these stories. Jesus never deceives. He never tells fairy tales. He only speaks the truth. And so, if we say, well, how do we know this is true? Jesus said so. And he ought to know. He ought to know. So, as he's talking to these people, he can tell these stories. But he doesn't tell stories on made-up ideas. They're stories on reality. Something that's true. And so, in chapter... 16 of Luke, verse 19. Now there was a rich man. He was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Well, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Here it comes, verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his what? 
He had eyes. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. He had a tongue. He had a tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. He's experiencing agony too. Now, simple little words here, but here's the point. Is this man just a ghost, or does he have some sort of a body that he can see, that he has a tongue, and that he can know agony? He understands thirst. He understands pain. And he's in that place. He's conscious, folks. He knows what's going on. Matter of fact, he's even spiritually conscious. If you go on with the passage, he knows that if his brothers do not hear the truth, they will come there too. And he's one of the greatest evangelists you ever find. But he can do nothing about it now. So there's the stories that I set before you. The question is this. Even unbelievers from Scripture appear to have some sort of a body after they're gone. Even before their body is resurrected, there's something in there. The believer, as we've already seen with Elijah, even though he never died, think about that. Moses, who did die. Samuel, who did die. We have records of them having some sort of body when they appeared back on this earth. Jesus Christ died and rose again, and what was he wearing? Did he have a body? Yes, he did. Could he eat? Yes, he could. Could he touch? Yes, he could. He could speak. He was not a ghost. Now, why did I walk you through all this stuff? Because here in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, it's talking about the redemption of our body. These bodies made by the Lord will be resurrected by the Lord. They will be. Now, they'll be much better than they are right now. I know that for sure. I'm glad for that. But the fact is that they will be resurrected. You say, okay, well, there's some evidence here, but the reality is we haven't experienced it yet, and that's what that verse 24 and 25 says. Yes, it's all based on hope. And if you've already seen that hope, then you don't have to have it. But if you haven't seen it, you need it. We have that hope right now. That's the hope. That's our confident expectation that God will redeem these bodies. All right? Now, that's where I rest it when I come back to these simple thoughts here today. It seems, from the text I've worked with here, that there is some sort of a temporary body we shall wear. A temporary body we shall wear. I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll sum this up. I know our time is getting very close here. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the entire context of what Paul said when, it said when he said to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Listen to these words and maybe you'll be a little puzzled. Maybe you'll be intrigued. Um, but the simple picture he uses here for the body is a tent. You're living in a tent. In contrast to a house. A tent is temporary. A house is permanent. That's the difference. He says in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent 
which is our house, is torn down. That means our body, and our body dies. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, this body, we groan. Isn't that what he just said in Romans 8 too? We groan. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. And how do we know it's true? He gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, we have good courage, he says. That's where it comes down to the practical side. Because we know these things, and we're sure that God has prepared them, and we can trust Him, we have good courage. We can walk down here and serve Him as we're called to serve Him, and go where He tells us to go, and do what He tells us to do. And sometimes that's scary. But we go. Why? Because we know that He's already prepared our future. I have no fears of the future. I have no worries about what it's going to be when I leave this earth. To be absent from the body, he says, this is my good courage, is to be at home with the Lord. That's where his confidence lies. That's where it sits. So as we've been walking our way through Romans chapter 8, we see, okay, so we're in a temporary body, it groans, it perishes, yes, but God's got the rest of this figured out. Matter of fact, so great is it that he's going to even redeem the bodies. Now, it shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't surprise you at all that God has everything figured out. There's no surprises to him. He's not going to see you walk in the gates of heaven someday and say, Oops, how'd that happen? No, he's already been through this. He's already thought it through. He's secured us. That way. He secured us from our past. Romans chapter 8, the first four verses. He's secured us in our minds. He's secured us in our living. He's secured us in our relationship. He secures us in our future. And then he goes into the great passages that follow. And what can possibly separate us from that love? Nothing. I love the passage. This is our security, folks. This is where we rest. And that's what it all comes down to. It's we rest. We rest in what he says. Do we have all the answers? No. Can we put together some logical thoughts and say, well, this, you know, it certainly sounds like this or this or this. You know, I'm just your tour guide who's never been there. That's what scripture tells us. So we say, okay, God has this. Under his sovereign control, too. Under his sovereign control. Can you rest in that? That, I trust, is satisfying to your soul. Because we need that in a day like ours. There's too much uncertainty in this world. There's no uncertainty in God's word. And that's what it tells us. So, our bodies will be redeemed. Praise the Lord for that. Heavenly Father... You know how to apply this to our lives and our thoughts this morning. Folks who struggle with things, folks especially who have recently lost loved ones. 
There's a lot of questions we do have. That's a veil we cannot see beyond. We can only trust your words. And as we trust you, as you have recorded the facts of creation, then we can also trust you with the recorded facts of our future. We can rest in these things, Lord. Certainly we should. And I pray today that if anybody is in need of, of your solidifying work in their heart, that you might undergird them with your grace, strengthen them through your word, give them confidence. Lord, if there's some among us who don't even know you as Savior, none of these things apply to them apart from Jesus Christ. Draw them to yourself. May they see their need for a Savior today, and may they come to him now. We thank you, Lord, for the promises you make that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we who have done that are rejoicing this morning in that reality. To belong to you, Lord, is incredible and so priceless to us. We are thankful to be to be your children and to call you our Father, to rest in your plans for us. Thank you, thank you so much for the security you give to us. May it be a blessing to us today, throughout this week. May it be strengthening for us. May it help us to trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.